Welcome to Snooze with Sam. Ambient Scottish sleep stories, meditations, and ASMR sometimes. In this instalment of Scottish history, we focus on Robert the Bruce. He existed in similar times to William Wallace, however things were not quite as simple in Robert's reign. Whereas Wallace was largely focused on one vision of Scottish rebellion and independence, the Bruce's as a whole's loyalty swept laterally on more than one occasion making for a rather different and fascinating angle in Scottish history. It was a complex time, so I shall do my best, as always, to help you keep track of who is what and where is when, and I'll sprinkle a little light entertainment, as always, I promise. So, when you're quite comfortable, warm and cosy, lie back, take a deep breath, and enjoy this story. This story tells the tale of Robert the Bruce, the Outlaw King. Robert I of Scotland, better known as Robert the Bruce, reigned as King of Scotland from 1306 to 1329. For his role in achieving independence from England, Robert the Bruce has long been regarded as a national hero and one of Scotland's greatest ever monarchs. Robert succeeded John Balliol, but only after a disorderly decade of side-switching and military ups and downs against English armies, led by Edward I of England, 
and those of rival Scottish barons. A grand victory over the English at Bannockburn in 1314 cemented Robert's claim to be the rightful king of Scotland. And his skillful diplomacy brought recognition of Scotland's full independence, both from the Pope and Edward III of England, who ruled later in his life. So let us learn a little about Robert's early life. Robert the Bruce was born on the 11th of July, 1274, at Turnbury Castle in Ayrshire, Scotland. His father was Robert the Bruce also, but he was Robert the Seventh. And his mother was Marjorie, Countess of Carrick. The Bruce family had been the Lords of Annandale since the 1120s and they claimed descent from Earl David, younger brother of William I of Scotland, who reigned from 1165 to 1214. Robert spent a period of his youth in either the Western Isles or Ulster in Ireland. As the family had estates and properties in England too, so did he spend time in Carlisle Castle and London of all places. Traitor. If Scots knew that today, I don't think they'd think nearly as highly of him. In 1292, Robert inherited the Earldom of Carrick. So even as a young lad, he'd already got a fair portfolio in his pocket. If only it came that easy to everyone else. Around 1295, Robert married Isabel of Mar, daughter of Donald, Earl of Mar, and then, in 1302, Elizabeth de Burgh, the daughter of Richard de Burgh, Earl of Ulster. 
Are you confused yet? With Isabel, Robert had a daughter, Marjorie, and with Elizabeth, he had two daughters, Matilda and Margaret, as well as two sons, David and John. Put very simply, he married twice and had lots of wins. The Great Cause When Alexander III of Scotland died, and his only heir was his granddaughter, who then herself died in 1290, Scotland was plunged into a political crisis. The royal houses of England and Scotland had been tied via several marriages, as we just learned. However, Edward I of England went a step further and considered the Scottish king his vassal. Edward arbitrated over a host of successor candidates in a process known as the Great Cause. The English king chose John Balliol in November 1292. You may remember that name from William Wallace's story. The main challenger to Balliol had been Robert the Bruce the Sixth, the grandfather of his more famous namesake and future king. The Bruces did not accept Edward's decision and continued to press their own claim for the throne. A good dose of Scottish ignorance and arrogance. I like it. Balliol had won because he was an even closer descendant of Earl David, and more importantly for Edward I, a more anglicised and weaker candidate, meaning he could be more easily manipulated.
as it turned out, John Balliol's reign lasted only four years, as Scottish nobles, tired of his ineffective resistance to the overbearing Edward, and the rise in taxes imposed to pay for the English king's war with France. Some of that bears resemblance to the political situation these days. But I am firmly on the fence. You get a great view when you're on the fence. In late 1295, a Regency Council of twelve discontented nobles established a new government, perhaps entirely independent of John. This council, and therefore Scotland, formally allied itself with Philip IV of France in February 1296. The first move in what became known as the Old Alliance. Rumour has it the deal was done through a trade of baguettes and haggis. But that's just a rumour. King John renounced his fealty to Edward I in April 1296. See, this is where it gets interesting. The Bruces did not support this rebellion against Edward I's overlordship. And Robert even joined the English force that attacked Scotland in 1296. See, already he's stirring things up civilly. Understandably, Edward's emphatic response to the Old Alliance, sealed with baguettes and haggis, was to repeatedly attack Scotland. There was a massacre of thousands of innocents at Berwick. Edward took the key Scottish castles and he inflicted a defeat on the Scottish army at the Battle of Dunbar on the 27th of April, 1296. A busy year. Three English barons were nominated to rule Scotland, which, in effect, became a province of England. Ugh, 
feels horrible to say that, doesn't it? John Balliol was stripped of his title and put in the Tower of London for safekeeping. The War of Independence Unfortunately for Edward I, as we know, Scotland proved rather more difficult to subdue than he anticipated. Almost immediately, rebellions sprang up. The most successful was the famous uprising led by the main man himself, Mel Gibson, I mean William Wallace, and Sir Andrew Morey of Bothwell. We know all about them, don't we? The rebels won a famous victory in September 1297 at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. A ruling council was established, consisting of Wallace, John Common, and then Bishop Lamberton. But because they can't be pleased, the Bruces did not support this group. Especially as the Commons were supporters of the rival Balliols. At this point, the Bruces seem not to have fully backed either Wallace or Edward I, but instead they bided their time to better see the outcome of this first stage in what had become known as the First War of Independence. By the year 1298, though, Robert the Bruce was clearly on the Scottish side, as he was involved in the attack of English-held Air Castle. So you think he finally made up his mind? You think? However, a few years later, 
in the year 1302. Robert's marriage to Elizabeth, as we mentioned before, daughter of an ally of Edward I, coupled with the release of John Balliol from his safekeeping in the Tower of London, meant that Robert once again sided with the English, lest Balliol's Scottish allies succeeded in reinstating the ex-king. What a bizarre turn of events. You literally couldn't write it, could you? Edward responded to the defeat at Stirling Bridge by leading his army in person and winning another encounter in July 1298 at the Battle of Falkirk where, unfortunately, over 20,000 Scots were killed. Edward then sent more armies and in 1305 Wallace was captured and executed as a traitor in London. Nevertheless, Wallace had become a national hero and an example to follow for others. Notably, Robert the Bruce, who by 1305 began to think twice about his decisions up until then, as he had serious misgivings concerning his support for the English crown. nugget. It now seemed highly unlikely that Edward I would ever make Robert King of Scotland. Steadily over the next year and probably largely in secret. Robert began to work on gaining allies from key Scottish barons. By February 1306, the Scots were rallying around their new figurehead, Robert the Bruce, who denounced John Balliol as a puppet of Edward I.
on the 10th of February. Robert or his followers assassinated John Common, his chief rival claimant for the throne, by stabbing him in the Church of Greyfriars in Dumfries. With the definite support of the Northern Scottish Barons and the dubious support of others, Robert simply went for broke and declared himself king. Robert was inaugurated in Schoon Abbey on the 25th of March 1306. The king's position was, though, precarious indeed. There followed two defeats to an English army at Methen, spelled Methven, by the way, on the 19th of June, and to a Scottish army, led by John MacDougall of Argyll, at Dalry, on the 11th of July. Things were not looking great for Robert, and he was obliged to flee to Rathlin Island on the coast of Ireland. The English, unable to get their hands on the king, went for the next best thing and hunted down his family. When Edward I died in July 1307, he was succeeded by his son, Edward II of England, who ruled from 1307 for 20 years to the year 1327. The new king lacked the political and military talents of his father and he also had to deal with the descent into political anarchy in his own kingdom, which eventually erupted into civil war. Almost acting as a distraction, these developments left Scotland some breathing space.
Robert the Bruce was able to return to Scotland, where he and his brother Edward fought a sustained guerrilla war against English troops and Balliol supporters. By mid-1308, Robert had smashed the commons, taken their key castles, and raised them to the ground, and taken possession of Aberdeen. In the autumn of 1309, at the Battle of the Pass of Branda, the MacDougalls were decisively defeated too. And at this point, Robert offered truces to any Scots willing to follow him. Consequently, in March 1309, a parliament at St Andrews declared that the people of Scotland supported Robert the Bruce as their king. An embassy from France similarly declared that Robert was the rightful king of Scotland. Things seemed to be looking up for Robert, getting fans left, right and centre. Still though, several key castles remained in English hands And these included Berwick, Roxburgh, Edinburgh, and Stirling. And so over the next four years, Robert pulled up his tartan socks as high as they would go, and set about getting them back very often leading the attacks in person. So again, what we can gather is just like the modern-day politics of Scotland and the UK. Schemes and who plays for what side was just as volatile then as it is now. Everyone out for themselves to make a name. How refreshing. Bannockburn and Independence.
Edward II's preoccupation with his own internal troubles meant that Robert could pick off English-held castles one by one. He also destroyed them to prevent reuse by the enemy. He also made regular and lucrative raids into northern England, seemingly at will. After an unsuccessful attack in 1311, it was not until 13 14, that Edward led an army to Scotland, the motivation being the siege of the English-held Stirling Castle. There's just so much back and forth, isn't there? Year on year, we attack you, they attack them. I wonder if anybody just thought, you know what, let's just sit down and have a nice cup of tea. Edward's force greatly outnumbered the Scots, led by Robert the Bruce. There were about 15 to 20,000 English soldiers versus the 10,000 of the Scotsmen. At this advantage of the mobility of Edward's 2,000 heavy cavalry were negated by Robert's choice of a narrow, boggy ford as the battle site near Bannockburn village. When the two armies clashed on the 23rd and 24th of June, Edward held back his archers until too late and the terrain and Scottish pikemen arranged in bristling and mobile hedgehog formations did the rest. Around 200 English knights were killed in a disastrous defeat. The English king narrowly escaped with his own life. Robert had shown both his skill at leadership and his bravery in battle, meeting the challenge 
of a one-on-one -on -one fight with Henry de Bohan. After the battle, Stirling Castle surrendered and immense booty was taken from the abandoned English camp. Scotland had effectively reasserted its independence. Robert negotiated the release of Queen Elizabeth and Princess Marjorie. He also confiscated the lands of those Scottish lords who had supported Edward, giving him ample resources to reward his followers and ensure their continued loyalty. Long-term consequences of this policy were the creation of almost two powerful families in southern regions. The creation of enemies amongst the descendants of the disinherited and the impoverishment of the crown itself, a deployment which necessitated taxes merely to pay for the living expenses of the monarch. For the moment though, Robert was riding high. Berwick was taken in 1318 and the Scottish King continued to raid Northern England, almost capturing York in 1319. Foreign policy and recognition. Feeling audacious, Robert was secure enough in his own kingdom after 1314 to even consider foreign conquest. Some people can just never get enough, can they? In a campaign covering three winters, the Scottish King grabbed Ulster and installed his brother Edward as the King of Ireland in 1316. 
The Scottish army had been assisted by the locals, who were only too willing to rid themselves of the English barons there. However, his brother, Edward Bruce, proved just as unpopular, and he was killed in battle in 1318. In the end, the Scots gave up Carrickfergus Castle and withdrew from Ireland altogether. On the 6th of April, 1320, a letter was sent to the Pope requesting a withdrawal of Robert's excommunication and the placing of Scotland under an interdict. Both applied because Robert had refused to sign a truce with England back in 1317. The contents of the letter are often called the Declaration of Arbro, which boldly stated that Scotland was a free and independent kingdom, and the English crown had no rights whatsoever there. This impressive document, which is festooned with the seals of eight earls and thirty-eight barons, still survives today. Robert, meanwhile, still had a handful of Scottish barons working against him and a failed assassination plot was ruthlessly avenged in late 1320. In 1322, a lacklustre English invasion was repelled. Then, in 1323, finally, a 13-year truce was agreed between England and Scotland. Hooray! The 1326 Treaty of Corbeil formally established an alliance of mutual assistance between Scotland and France, including a clause whereby a French attack on England obliged Scotland to also attack their southern neighbour. 
There's always loopholes. <laughs> Scotland's independence and Robert's right to the throne were recognised by the English Crown in the 1328 Treaty of Edinburgh and Northampton. The treaty was sealed with Robert handing over £20,000 and the betrothal of Robert's son, David, to Joan, the sister of the new king, Edward III of England. Cherry on the cake was the Pope's decision in 1329 to allow Scottish monarchs to officially receive a crown and holy anointment during their coronations. The Kingdom of Scotland was, for the first time, now an equal footing with other European monarchies. Does anybody else hear bagpipes? Or is that just me? Robert the Bruce died on 7th of June, 1329, at his manor house at Cardross in Dumbartonshire. The king had been ill for two years. The medieval chroniclers describing his ailment as leprosy. Robert was buried at Dunfermline Abbey. However, he had long wished to go on a crusade to the Holy Land, and never having managed it, he requested that Sir James Douglas take his heart there. Douglas was killed in a battle in Spain. But legend has it, Robert's embalmed heart was taken back to Scotland and buried at Melrose Abbey. Robert the Bruce's reputation grew ever grander as he became a favourite of medieval chroniclers and the subject of many a celebrated poem. And throughout the centuries, his name carried and continues to carry 
strongest possible symbol of the power of Scotland and its independence.